Welcome. On today's episode of Speaking Out of Place, Aziz Akanji and I will be speaking with Haley Dushinsky and Imran Mir, two specialists on Kashmir, one of the most misunderstood and invisible struggles that we need to know about. It's a very full program that gives you the kinds of information that we don't have about this critical space in the world. Kashmir is the most densely occupied military occupation in the world, and yet it is perpetually erased from conversation about justice and settler colonization. And so we are so pleased to have with us two people with such deep expertise on both the present conditions of violence and atrocity, as well as the deep history that underpins it. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with kind support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for its content. So thank you for being here. I'm wondering if you could give us like a short history of modern Kashmir so that our listeners understand this unusual situation. Tell us about the plebiscite that's never happened and how we got to where we are now. Thanks, David. It's a complex history, but in really brief terms, I think the key thing to understand about Kashmir is that it is a place that was never decolonized and it was recolonized in what is a nominally post-colonial world. So in essence, the modern version of this stems from a concession arrangement, whereby the British concessioned the territory, its people, and its resources to a brutal Hindu supremacist warlord who imposed a regime of official discrimination and repression that was characterized by state violence and forced slavery. And in response to that, there arose a rights movement that sought democratic rights, self-determination, dignity more broadly, economic rights, etc. It also had an anti-supremacist aspect to it because it was a population that was 97 plus percent Muslim who were considered to be outcasts, untouchables, you know, rightless people in a regime that was Hindu supremacist in orientation. And that antedates the British leaving South Asia. When they did leave in 1947, that movement continued to seek more fulsome democratic rights, etc. This dispute became a dispute at the UN, which you're referring to, David, on January 1, 1948. India brought the dispute to the Security Council. The Security Council's view, as problematic body as it is, was that this dispute was to be settled by a free and democratic plebiscite or referendum. Both India and Pakistan, who were the two parties at the Security Council to that dispute, agreed to that position. Since 1948, there has neither been a plebiscite, nor has there been the recognition or defense of the human rights that were also called by the UN Security Council, even though these are obligations of international law and dependent on the Security Council saying anything or doing anything. And in Kashmir, there was this ongoing movement that dates from that pre-colonial, if you will, period, although, as I said, this is a colonial reality throughout. And that movement continued to call for democratic rights, the right to express one's views freely, the right to assemble, the right to have some modicum of justice when violations occur, the right to self-determination, among many other things. That movement has been severely repressed throughout the period. There have been grave human rights violations throughout the period since 1947. In Indian and Kashmir, which is the reason that we're talking about, there was a major inflection point in 1989 in terms of the gravity of the violations. There's a broad effort in 1987 to seek democratic representation in Kashmir. The result is the people that organize, the political parties that organize that call, they are detained en masse, they are tortured en masse, and there emerges a small armed wing of this rights-based movement 
The Indian state's response is a war on the civilian population, which leads to three decades of severe human rights violations and widespread crime against humanity in this territory. And then there was another inflection point in 2019, which was basically ideological orientation and is the imposition of a new type of repression in this very repressed place. That repression is oriented towards the total disempowerment and domination of this local population. I think what is fairly described as a Hindu fascist project in this territory. I'll just add that this is the 75th anniversary of the UN Security Council's recognition of Kashmir as an international dispute. And along with Palestine, Kashmir is the longest running unresolved dispute on the agenda of the Security Council. And looking back at this period of time in 1947, when India and Pakistan were gaining independence, the princely state of Jammu and Kashmir at that time had several options available to it. It could become independent, it could accede to India or to Pakistan. And the Maharaja of the princely state at that time signed an uh, instrument of accession for union with India that was viewed as a temporary arrangement. And this was a period, of course, of great instability and warfare across the subcontinent, as well as in the princely state and the surrounding areas. On the basis of the temporary nature of the instrument of accession, when India issued its constitution in the 1950s, it included a really important article in the constitution, Article 370, that served as a register of the unresolved nature of Kashmir's accession and the unresolved nature of the Kashmir dispute in the wake of the UN Security Council resolution. And this Article 370 does a number of things, but it provides um, a degree of autonomy to the state of Jammu and Kashmir in India. Again, it's a, it's a register of the international nature of the dispute. Now, the government of India across decades has chipped away at Article 370, but still, up until 2019, Article 370 continued to exist as a marker of the different nature of the state of Jammu and Kashmir. The abrogation in August of 2019 was very significant in this respect. And I just wanted to set the stage a little bit for our discussions later in the podcast of the abrogation. The abrogation of Article 370 has now put Kashmiri lawyers and scholars and activists in kind of a difficult position of advocating against the repeal of Article 370, which guaranteed the state union in India, even though it was viewed as temporary, Article 370 was problematic itself, but now the elimination of it itself is problematic too. So there's kind of a paradox around Article 370 and its abrogation. One of the things to understand about Article 370 in India's constitution as it relates to Kashmir is that those constitutional provisions of illegalities that actually recognize as being illegal at the time they're put in place, built on antecedent illegalities, including this accession that Haley referenced. But you have this continuous regime of violations and the legalization of those violations. And so you're, in a way, drowning in violations and looking for some measure of hope, accountability, something in this context. And so I would describe people's efforts at trying to defend Article 370 as you know, seeking some modicum of something to hold on to, although it itself is a violation and has resulted in widespread violations in Kashmir. This has all happened under UN auspices, which is really fascinating. And one of the ways that Kashmir is differentiated from any other situation that I know of, I mean, a, there is a, a parallel in Palestine and those two histories are actually connected in several ways. But Kashmir is actually different in several ways. And I think it's interesting to think about Kashmir as a bridge back to that moment 
of the foundation or reconstitution of the international order in a post-World War II period. If you look at the world through Kashmir, it's very clear that those commitments, those things that we all generally hold to be true, things like human rights as this compulsory thing, this mandatory thing under international law, these commitments are completely hollow. And I think that's really significant for people to appreciate. I mentioned Kashmir as this place of ongoing coloniality in a post-colonial, a nominally post-colonial world. It has so much to say about the system, systematic and systemic injustice and unfairness and belies, if you will, that perpetuate the order that we have. It's a very interesting case in international history. I mean, we're all actually speaking from land that is colonized indigenous land. And so perhaps Kashmir is one of the most visible markers of an international legal order that continues to validate colonial arrangement of sovereignty, including on these lands that we're on and that have even been built into the very instruments that are meant to redress violence against indigenous peoples, like the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which continues to valorize the territorial sovereignty of existing colonial states. Thank you for providing this deep background context to what is constantly represented as a series of crises of violence in Kashmir without interrogating the underlying structural conditions of coloniality, which are themselves guaranteed to continue to produce crisis after crisis. When we were first discussing doing this podcast episode, it was in response to the arrest of two human rights defenders, Kurum Perez and Irfan Mehraj, which we will return to. But since that time, we have had another crisis that has been calling for a response and that your organization has called for a response to, which is the holding of G20 meetings in Kashmir and the attendant spectacle of the Indian government having campaigns of beautification and promotion of tourism on the site of ongoing atrocities, genocide, ecocide, torture, mass graves. Can you talk a bit about what the holding of these G20 meetings here says not only about the Indian regime's program in Kashmir, but also about the willingness of the international community to collude in its whitewashing and greenwashing and quote-unquote normalization? I think an essential thing is trying to see clearly. And when we try to describe the circumstance, speak clearly about that which is happening. Kashmir, and you know, Aziza, you said, you know, these ongoing crises, and it's true. I mean, there are crises, but a lot of what's happening is the state's description, which is predicated on disinformation. And what I would call, and Haley and I talk about this, organized lying. I feel like that notion is critical. It is the obliteration of reality and the manufactured production of a new reality that serve as a purpose of the powerful groups who are producing this type of disinformation. India is the president of the G20 this year. And as you said, Aziza, they have scheduled meetings happening this month in Kashmir. So as we said, this is occupied territory. It is a place that is in fact colonized. It is a place of widespread grave violations and everybody knows it. This is not a secret. It's been widely reported. People in power are aware. Indian officials have been very explicit about the purpose of holding the G20 in Kashmir, and it is to project what they call normalcy. That the situation is A-OK. And they've been explicit about this. They've said they are demonstrating that the narrative of human rights violation in this place is propaganda. And so it's fascinating that you have this very overt and clear effort built on long-standing efforts. I would just 
point out here that India is a very adept state for a very long time in the practice of many tools of authoritarian repression. And one of them is disinformation. This has actually been, to some extent, in the scholarly literature and amongst activists who focus on disinformation, it has been exposed to some extent, but not really absorbed. You know, India is very well situated politically. It's important to mention here. You know, India is a state that benefits from being perceived as being an indispensable ally of both Russia and the U.S. You will not find another state that benefits more politically than India from the circumstance of impunity. And so when Indian officials use the G20 actively to promote a narrative that is intended to obliterate a very repressive reality and to produce a new one, the response from the international community is very happy participation in that enterprise. I mentioned at the outset that we have seen, and it's not just 75 years. I mean, this goes back actually to the period that antedates the formation of the United Nations. But if we start from the Security Council resolutions in 1948, we have 75 plus years of grave violations under the auspices of the UN. At best, you see complicity through inaction by the international community. It's actually much worse than that. We don't need to go into that all that here. When you have this G20 movement, what you have is active participation in this project. And I think in legal terms, one would term that aiding and abetting. And aiding and abetting, as an aider or abetter, you are responsible for the violations of the party that you're aiding and abetting. And I think that, you know, that is the case. Again, another way that Kashmir is differentiated, I think, from any other situation, practically, at least in my mind, this is a place that is completely cut off from the world. Nobody has access. The UN doesn't have access. International journalists don't have access. Human rights groups don't have access. This is not new. This is longstanding. There have been only two circumstances since 2019 where international actors have visited this place. One was a visit in late 2019 by far-right European MEPs. It was a state-managed trip to project normalcy again. And there was a visit in 2020 by a few hand-picked journalists around a process that was a process of manufactured supposed political representation that was actually the destruction of any remaining politics at a local level in Kashmir. A few international journalists were invited in. Again, it was a state-managed thing, which some of the journalists saw through. Those are the only two circumstances. Otherwise, there's no access. People are routinely turned away, not given access, etc. And now you have this event and, you know, very little concern, no recognition in the active participation of the most powerful states and many organizations in the world in this effort at obliteration and the blessing of grave violations. Haley? And if in your response, you could also talk about the Kashmir Scholars Consultative and Action Network's letter and the response to it. Thank you. Imran was speaking about India's disinformation campaigns. And I'll just add to that, that India is very aggressively and successfully positioning itself as a global leader. And it's doing this in a particular way. It's capitalizing on its policies of committing human rights violations in the name of security and counterterrorism in order to position itself as a leader and also the protection of human rights. And it's doing this in a number of ways. We're talking about the G20. We're looking ahead to that in the coming weeks. But just more generally, India is playing an active role as a member of the UN Human Rights Council. It sits on the UN committee that regulates which international NGOs have consultative status and access to the UN. 
It just finished a two-year term as an elected member on the Security Council. It held the presidency in December of 2022. And during this period of time, when it was holding presidency of the Security Council, it hosted an international congress in Delhi, leading to this Delhi Declaration, specifically on countering the use of new and emerging technologies for terrorism. Now this year, it's presiding over the G20 and holding these meetings, especially with themes of security and counterterrorism across India, including in Kashmir. Um, just to give you an example of kind of, you almost have a feeling like you're looking through the looking glass backwards when you're trying to work through this. In February, at the Human Rights Council, the external affairs minister submitted a statement at the UN saying that the international community must demonstrate zero tolerance towards terrorism. And in fact, he said that terrorism is the most indefensible violation of human rights. So this is how these concepts become mm. twisted. And I can also say a few things about the current way in which India is using its primary counterterrorism law to judicially harass, to incarcerate, and to prosecute human rights activists in Kashmir. Kurum Parvez is the leading human rights defender in Kashmir. He is one of the primary activists who's associated with an organization called the Jammu and Kashmir Coalition of Civil Society, JKCCS. This is Kashmir's primary human rights organization. There are very few human rights organizations in the region. This is the only one that really operates locally, regionally, and globally. He's also the chair of a major organization called the Asian Federation Against Involuntary Disappearances, AFAD, and this is based in the Philippines. It focuses on enforced disappearance cases. For almost two decades, JKCCS has been operating as an internationally respected human rights documentation center and a key civil society institution in Kashmir. It has published a number of vitally important reports just since 2009, buried evidence, alleged perpetrators, structures of violence, torture. Its last major report was called Kashmir's Internet Siege, and that came out in August 2020. These reports are incredibly meticulous. They're very rigorous. They document the ongoing human rights abuses in Kashmir. JKCCS has also trained students. It's collaborated with scholars, and it's forged alliances, solidarities with civil society groups across Asia and internationally. And these reports have been vitally important for providing information to global bodies that monitor the human rights situation in Kashmir. They've been important for the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, European Parliament, the US State Department, the UN Special Procedures Mandates, the independent experts have all relied on these reports coming from JKCCS. In November of 2020, that's about two and a half years ago, India's primary counterterrorism agency, the National Investigation Agency, that's the NIA, raided the offices in the homes of JKCCS and a few other civil society groups operating in Kashmir. And those raids effectively shut down the human rights documentation and the reporting coming from JKCCS. A year after that, in November of 2021, Quorum was arrested under the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act. That's the UAPA. This is India's main anti-terror law. After six months of incarceration later, he was charged with a range of terror-related crimes. He's been in prison now for almost 18 months while he's awaiting trial. There's been an international outcry from UN human rights bodies, from international organizations. A few months ago, he was honored by a collective of Geneva-based human rights organizations with the prestigious Martin Ennold Award for Human Rights Defenders. So last month, in March of 2023, the NIA advanced a second terror-related case. And this one is significant. It specifically targets not just Kurim Parvez, but also JKCCS as a human rights organization. And now in this case, in March, they arrested Kurum for a second time. He's already in prison. 
And they also arrested Irfan Naraj, who is a journalist who worked for a time as a researcher with JKCCS, and he's also been reporting on military and police excesses. So I just want to highlight the significance, particularly of this recent case. This case is important because in this case, the police report explicitly criminalizes human rights documentation and reporting by stating that JKCCS and other organization and their members, I'll quote here, by words and written means, published anti-national and incriminating material to bring into hatred, contempt, and disaffection towards the government of India. They're criminalizing the reports themselves as human rights reports. And the NIA has also emphasized these themes in all of its statements surrounding the arrest. Listening to you, I'm thinking, of course, of Israel and its categorical designation of international human rights organizations as terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm. I was struck by a phrase in one of your pieces, Haley, when you talk about the performance of democracy. And I'm thinking it's really important for an international audience to understand the difference between the performance that we're getting and the reality on the ground. So could you give us some examples of this performance that you're talking about that might otherwise pass unnoticed and then show what's really happening underneath the surface? And a second question in that topic would be, why are we so gullible? Why are we so ready to suspend disbelief and accept the performance? Well, I think that this case against Corin Pervez, JKCCS, human rights defenders, as well as so many similar kinds of cases against Kashmiri journalists, scholars, students, Kashmiri political leadership, popular political leadership. Over the last several years, we've seen we've seen an escalation and an expansion of illegal and arbitrary detention of these various categories of Kashmiris simply for dissenting against the state and simply for telling the story of what's actually happening on the ground. The government of India for decades and decades has criminalized Kashmiris through a whole range of colonial-era emergency laws and security laws. And these are laws that also grant immunity to state forces for human rights abuses. These forms of lawfare, these are nothing new in Kashmir. That's absolutely the case. This goes back decades. But what we are seeing is an escalation and an expansion of the use of these counter-terror laws that are vague, that are overly broad, that are considered illegal under international law standards. The use of them to intimidate and to threaten and to criminalize journalists, scholars, lawyers, activists, and political leaders. And so all of this is happening in the name of security and in the name of counterterrorism, right? So I think that this is how India is very successfully projecting this facade of normalcy and this performance of democracy to the international community by actually using these very patterns of arrest and illegal and arbitrary detention to erase, to silence, to eliminate Kashmiri dissent and then to use that as the basis for them bolstering their reputation and image to the international community as a country that is really successfully handling the problem of terrorism, is protecting national security, and is promoting the human rights of its people. You mentioned that India is now on the UN body responsible for accrediting organizations that have status at the UN. And we know also how assiduously India has been stamping down on NGOs and other independent organizations. Do we know of any cases where a denial of status to an organization at the UN seems to have perhaps been based on India's intervention? Imran Arhid. Remember, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, Aziza, the names of the entities, but it's actually, it's widely understood by people working in civil society in India and those who otherwise find themselves under Indian authority that it's impossible to achieve these things. And it's not, to be clear, you know, these are, this is kind of going in a slightly different direction, but we think about these mechanisms like the UN and how it operates. It's a multilateral body. 
And so it's doing the work of states, which is deeply problematic. You even think about the disposition of international law. It presumes that states are good actors. I mean, it is a horrible presumption. And so you see other states, for example, China. I mean, like there are Tibetan groups, for example, who for decades have been trying to get ECOSOC status to be recognized at the UN and haven't been, <laughs> haven't been able to. The same is true for groups that are coming from India. In the case of Kashmir, you know, there's a kind of a not a UN-facing thing, but I think an interesting thing to kind of bring out. One of the, there is a, there is such a thing as a best practices of authoritarianism. And what you see is that states collaborate actively, and then they're also learning from each other passively. And they are coordinated in their repression, and the more repressive states are very adept at adapting and developing techniques of repression. So to see the same techniques. David, you referenced the use of counterterror as a narrative and as a legal label to criminalize human rights work by Palestinians and people who are working with Palestinians. We see the same thing in India. You know, Haley referenced that as it relates to this law, the UAPA, not just that law, and there are others. But there's this phenomenon that relates to funding, the ability to receive funding, particularly from abroad. Not exclusively. And again, this is something you'll find in many contexts. States are utilizing transparency. The laws, they're supposedly about ensuring that people are acting, you know, for example, we would say non-for-profits are acting in an in above-board way, things like that. What they are used for in, in, in practice is to starve and then criminalize any work that the state deems to be disfavored. It's interesting in the Kashmir context, what you find, if we take one step back and we think about systems like law or institutions like law, you know, they are just or fair if the greatest privilege is given to the least empowered. And what you find is that these institutions like law are used to systematically disempower those who are already disempowered, but in a place like Kashmir to actually destroy people who are disempowered. And so you see the utilization of techniques of authority and repression in a place like Kashmir, which is this completely rightless and disempowered space. And then you sort of see the adaptation and then utilization of some of those techniques in India later. So as an example, there's a, a regulation called the FCRA, which has to do with your ability to receive funds from abroad in India. Kashmiri groups have had the inability to obtain those permissions and move money for decades. The repression has gotten more severe over time. I mentioned that this is a place where there's no international access. For a strictly humanitarian project, you could not give money to someone in Kashmir today without subjecting people to criminal liability. That technique has been exported. It has been used in India, and you've sort of seen the last few years in particular, there's any number of groups. And so a group like Amnesty International has faced persecution in India on this basis. And within the last few months, you had an organization like the BBC, that is the British Broadcasting Corporation, the quintessential colonial like journalistic body, as it were. The last thing I'll say is, when you're talking about people like Kashmiris, Haley was referencing the narrative, the very successful and profound narrative of terror in Kashmir. To be very clear, there's not a problem of terror in Kashmir, and there's never been a problem. With well, terror. maybe it's a problem of Indian state terror. Not Kashmiris. And part of the reason why it's very easy for it to be produced as a narrative is that the people we're talking about, if we're honest, they're Muslim. And there is already a deep association between people who are Muslim 
and the idea of terrorism. And that antedates, I mean, there is a sort of war on terror world that we live in today. And it's true in that context, obviously. I think for anyone who's paying some attention. But it actually is a much older and deeper thing that goes back. But for purposes of our conversation, it is fascinating. Haley referenced this instrument of accession. It's a very interesting document in 1947 that purportedly, although it, it has no legal validity, purportedly the monarch, the sovereign, presumptive sovereign that was governing Jabal Kashmir, acceded to the Indian Union. It was, a con it was conditioned on a plebiscite by its own terms. It was temporary by its own terms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a cover letter to this legal instrument. And there's an, call it an, off, there's an offer letter and an acceptance letter. There's an offer letter from the Maharaja, the king, and there's an acceptance letter from India. And it's fascinating. One of the premises of that offer letter is that everything is great in Jammu and Kashmir. There's no problem here. My citizens love me. This, this is a man, the Maharaja, who's actually actively committing a genocide in his territory at that time. He says the problem is barbaric invaders from across the border pointing to Pakistan. And that's the pretext, not true, that's the pretext for this instrument. This is an argument of self-defense. What in fact is happening at that time is the rights-based movement that I was talking about. People had, had risen up. Their villages in early 1947 had been torched. They had risen up. These were actually soldiers who had fought for the Brits, for the Allies in World War II who had gone home and their guns have been taken away. And the Maharaja's troops are coming through and burning down their villages. And they go and buy arms in the private markets and they rise up in rebellion against their king. These are the people that he is calling barbarian invaders. And it's this barbarism and the foreignness because these are Muslims that they're able to invoke. And it has widespread appeal. I mean, who are they invoking this to? It's the UK and the US and other parties. It's an easy argument to make. And it's been made consistently throughout this period. He said Kashmir, I think it's really a litmus test and a revealer of so many of the paradoxes, contradictions, and violences that have been built into the international world order. So third world approaches to international law scholars like Frederick Maigret point out that what we now call, quote unquote, terrorism is really a recapitulation of the old international legal regimes that used to deal with once barbarians and savages, so-called people who are placed outside the international legal order. And so because they supposedly don't adhere to any rules, anything can be done against them. Now we call them, quote unquote, terrorists. Imran, you spoke about how the international regime has been built on a presumption of the goodness of states. And it seems like part of that is an assumption of the legitimacy of state violence while anything that's outside of that or separate from that is then deemed, quote unquote, terrorism and can be dealt with using means that are called exceptional. But really, when we look throughout history, what's called the exception really looks more like, like the norm. And it's only posited as a perpetual exception because so much of that colonial history has been erased. And so can you both of you, perhaps we can start with Haley, speak about how the designation of what's happening in Kashmir as, quote unquote, terrorism really speaks to some deeper tensions and problems in international law in the way that violence is regarded and understood. Absolutely. I think, and as Imran has been discussing, the Kashmir dispute, the freedom struggle of Kashmiris really reflects the deeply problematic nature of international law, the challenges and complexities of international law. And as you're suggesting, the third world approaches to international law, the 12 scholarship really helps us understand the many ways in which imperialism has shaped the formation and the development of international law across time. It shows how these power differentials have shaped hierarchies of domination and exclusion in the international legal system during the colonial era and then across the post-colonial period, such that 
former colonies who were given the opportunity for independence in the era of decolonization were promised sovereignty, but not quite as much sovereignty as their former colonizer. And how in this way, they were promised sovereignty in a system that was built to exclude them. So the 12th scholarship for me has really exposed the limits of these foundational international law concepts of sovereignty and self-determination and statehood. So we've seen all of this playing out in reference to Kashmir. What we've actually seen in this context is kind of an interesting twist on the 12 narrative, which is that India, as a formerly colonized nation, has now become deeply invested in asserting its own sovereignty in the international law system. And it's done this through ever more insistent proclamations of territorial integrity and ever more violent denials of the rights of indigenous and stateless people who live within its own borders. And so this is how India has now itself become a colonizing power by disempowering and disenfranchising and dispossessing indigenous people. And here we're talking about Kashmiri. In a recent edited volume, the Routledge Handbook on Critical Kashmir Studies, Mona Bond and I have an article on this, and we call the phenomenon third world imperialism in reference to India and its colonizing project in Kashmir. So Kashmiris are, of course, colonized by India, and now they find themselves in a sovereignty trap. So the concepts, the legal categories that they've used to express their aspirations for freedom across these 75 years have been in and through these international law paradigms of sovereignty and self-determination, even though, once again, they're waging these struggles in an international system that was built to exclude them. So this sovereignty trap has simultaneously opened up possibilities and simultaneously foreclosed those possibilities for freedom and justice across all of these decades. And so then I think the question is, like, what do we do with this? Like, once we recognize the failures of international law to provide this liberatory framework through which Kashmiris might defend and reclaim their land and their rights and their basic dignity, once we recognize that international law has, in fact, sustained the settler colonial occupation across time, do we abandon international law and do we abandon its promises of sovereignty and self-determination? Again, here I turn to the 12th scholarship and the scholarship reminds us that international law can be reconstituted and fundamentally restructured differently and that international law is itself always in the process of being reconstituted from below. Of course, international law is created by state. As we're talking about, the UN is a body comprised of state actors. But it's also created by lawyers and practitioners and scholars and activists and journalists and popular leaders. It's created by the voices and the actions of people and movements. Um, international law is an everyday process. It unfolds in particular context, and it's constantly shaped and reshaped by people and networks. So Mona and I argue in our essay that this liberatory approach to international requires us not to just jettison international frameworks and institutions, but rather to really pursue sustained collaborative and deliberative partnerships among transnational networks of people, people who are positioned locally and globally, who are committed to the shared project of reconstituting international law from below. This is really where all of these Kashmiri actors on the ground, people like Koran Parvez, like the journalists, the scholars, the students, and the lawyers, many of whom are now being threatened and incarcerated, intimidated. It's so important for them to be giving voice to their own visions of international law, their own visions of liberation and emancipation in and through international law. So for us, the struggle for Kashmiri liberation is also a project of reclaiming international law from below, and Kashmir can be seen as a vision for this possibility moving forward.
So I just had one sort of extension over this discussion on terrorism, and I'm thinking aloud about my own question about gullibility. And I'm thinking that, you know, the first nation that stepped forward after 9-11 to aid the United States in its war on terror was the Philippines. And they said, you know, we have our own Muslims in the southern Philippine islands. We understand this. So this consolidation of national security around a particular enemy, I think, is very, very contagious, if, if to say the least. But Imran, you said something really provocative, and I'd like to have you say more. You said Kashmir really doesn't have a terrorism problem, or there's not terrorism. And I think that's one of the great stereotypes that the West sort of readily absorbs because of this paranoia, fear, readily convinced that Muslims are, you know, always there, someplace proximate. I think this would be so important for our listeners to know more about what the claims are and what the reality is in your point of view. Yes. So the claims are familiar to anyone who's reading about any context. They've mentioned the Philippines, which a lot of people probably don't know in a place like the US and Canada. And there's so many contexts in which these same tropes operate. The idea is that there are these people, they are religious fanatics slash, you know, typically Islamo-fascists would be maybe a fair description of what people mean. They're out for the imposition an imperial sense of their very narrow particular point of view on everybody else. And they're threatening a, an innocent civilian population. And there's sort of different manifestations of this. In the context of Kashmir, it's unclear in a way what was meant by that prior to 1989 and 90. It was a little bit of an abstract argument. And it went to the point that I tried to make without going too deep into this history about 1947 and the claim that the problem here was foreign invasion by these barbarians from across the way. India invoked an argument of self-defense. And basically the argument went like this. If we don't hold the line here, these people are going to come across and ravage this homeland of ours that we've just created as this post-colonial state. And again, in fact, what was happening is that you had an indigenous rights-based, anti-colonial, pro-rights, anti-supremacist struggle that was having people defending their homes. And this is the way that they were labeled. And that trope did a lot of work for India at that time. In 1989 and the 1990, I mentioned that the emergence of a small armed resistance. So there's a broad Kashmir resistance. It's long-standing and ongoing. It is primarily civic in nature. There's civil society organizing, etc. And there have been a few moments, and this is one, where you had the emergence of an armed wing, shall we say, relatively small. The explicit goal of the fellows who took up arms at the time was to force the international community to act on its commitments to Kashmir. And they would often, and still do, point to the UN Security Council resolutions as evidence. There are some 20 resolutions that sort of say, respect these people's rights, their right to free speech, assembly, et cetera, respect their right to self-determination. That's never happened. The reason why they did that is because there was a popular mass movement for democratic representation. There's never been a free and fair election in Kashmir. You're talking about democracy before. It's never happened. Democracy has been used as a device of authoritarianism in this place. Processed democracy has been used as a device. So when that election was rigged and everyone that was involved was arrested and tortured, a small group decided to take up arms. And they became the perfect enemy. Keep in mind, this is a population that is 97 plus percent Muslim. There's a few minorities, a very small Christian minority in this place. There is a small Sikh minority in this place. And there is a minority of Hindus who are about 2% of the population, and they are all Brahmins. Very unique situation. And there's a whole 
prehistory to this, we won't go into it. But in this 1947 and beyond context, not everybody, you know, no group is uniform, but the broad thrust of the politics of Kashmiris Hindus is pro-India and anti-rights, anti-self-determination. This is a Brahminical group. In 1990, the claim is made. There is a governor installed by a Congress, which is a nominally secular nationalist government. There's a governor installed in Kashmir in January of 1990. That man is a Hindu supremacist. He's a BJP guy. The BJP is the party in India that is, you know, widely understood as a Hindu nationalist party. That really is, that really should be called a Hindu supremacist or if you will, a Hindu fascist party. This man is installed and he very clearly declares war on the population writ large as a Muslim population. And one of the things that happens is you have, and this is a very contested history. There's never been proper investigation of anything because it's not allowed in place of Kishner. But a significant number, not all, but a significant number of these Brahmins from Kishner, known as pundits, leave. And that is described in 1990 by some leading pundit groups and groups aligned with them in India, particularly on the Hindu right, as the genocide of Kashmiri pundits or the ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri pundits. They were never forced to leave. They were never asked to leave, but they did leave. And that narrative became very powerful and actually is instrumental in the rise of the Hindu right writ large in India. It's one of the key issues. Kashmir actually figures disproportionately in the far right politics of Hindus in India. And this goes back and to the time of And also transnationally, I think, too. And transnationally, yes. But coming back to your question about terrorism, this sort of the armed uprising or the armed bit of uprising coupled with this narrative of Hindu persecution is extremely potent ground. And again, when you look at people who are structurally subordinate, marginalized, unheard, again, you will be hard-pressed to find a group that is worse off than Kishmari Muslims, basically excluded from every conversation that matters. So that narrative of terrorism is just a very potent one. And in this context, it is just incredibly successful. The state, through it, state-aligned nationalist media platform had started floating a new category of terrorists, a new category of what they're calling a separatist intellectual ecosystem. They're using the phrase separatist terrorist ecosystem. JKCCS, they are locating at the heart of this ecosystem and are describing it as including international human rights organizations. They've named frontline defenders specifically, journalists, Kashmiri students who have gone overseas, the university and scholars who are publishing anti-national material relating to Kashmir. And this is a preposterous category, but it also builds on and it expands other quasi-legal categories that the military and the police have been deploying in Kashmir. And these actually show up in legal documents. For example, they've been categorizing business leaders as white-collar terrorists and journalists as narrative terrorists. These are actual categories that are being deployed in legal context, in court documents. So when you ask the question, like, who are terrorists in Kashmir today? The answer is, according to the state, every Kashmiri is a terrorist, basically. There are poets who are being persecuted for being terrorists, graffiti artists, musicians, anyone. They may not even be specifically about the rights of Kashmiris, et cetera, but broadly any kind of dissent. So we're in a moment of enforced silence. And just to come back to it, that is operating transnationally in a very overt and broadening way. This is a resource-rich part of the world. You know, we're talking about parts of the Himalayas that have only been partly, I think, explored from a geological perspective. But one of the resources that is a foundation to this whole enterprise and its exploitation also foundational to this enterprise is fresh water. And I raise it because 
This is one of the many ways where the reality in Kashmir is, is a tremendous climate justice and climate catastrophe scenario as well. So zoom out for a second. There are five rivers that form the Indus Valley Basin. The Indus Valley Basin is the most critical in terms of import population that it supports, freshwater resource in the entire world. Those rivers flow out of Kashmir and they have been dammed on both sides of the line of control by India and Pakistan for the production of hydroelectric power, which is a infrastructure program that results in myriad violations, the forced displacement of communities, the destruction of very sensitive ecology. When people protest these things, you see all kinds of consequent violations and the repression that those people face, et cetera. But on the Indian side of this equation, the Indian immense Kashmir, what we have seen over decades is the export of electricity produced from the rivers of Kashmir to the Indian national grid and the sale back to the people of Kashmir at exorbitant rates of a small portion of that electricity. And if you're in Kashmir, even today, the electricity supply is highly erratic, particularly in the periods of time that electricity is most critical. So Kashmir is not a warm place, it's a cold place. And in the wintertime, it's, you know, there are, you get typically, even these days, you get like a few hours at best, some days of the week. And so you sort of see this phenomenon where the fresh waters of Kashmir, these people's resources, are being used to serve the colonial master. And this classic sort of colonial situation of domination and exploitation is something that has so many manifestations and consequences. Metals and mining is a whole nother regime. The lithium story is one that, to be honest, the facts of which are fairly obscure at this point, at least for me, like it's not entirely clear what we mean, what kind of a deposit is this, et cetera. But we know that like with so many other examples in, in Kashmir, this is a situs of further exploitation and abuse. But again, coming back to the point that we made before, it's also very important, the instrumentalization of it in the narrative of, you just mentioned it, green energy. Again, I mentioned hydroelectric power. When India looks at its, the greening of its electricity generation, a major contribution to its climate impacts, it's looking at Kashmir and building more dams in more ecologically sensitive places, a widespread program of dam building. So again, you have this obliteration of reality and the production of this thing that everyone thinks is really good. Oh, it's green generation. It's green electricity. What it is in fact is this whole swath of very grave violations, and lithium is another example, and there are so many others. So it's this thing that we have to interrogate and be careful about, and it's a very damning and very colonial thing. You have to sort of wrap your mind around it. Iman explained that settler colonialism as a state policy and a practice has a long history in Kashmir, and this predates the establishment of both India and Pakistan. And I'll just mention that it's important, I think, to read settler colonialism in Kashmir alongside and in conversation with settler colonial logics in Canada, the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Israel, Palestine. It's interesting to note that it's only been since the abrogation of 2019 that Kashmiri scholars and activists and lawyers have really turned to the settler colonial analytic to name and make sense of India's policy of annihilation and elimination and erasure. In Kashmir, there's been a long history of using the framework of occupation, which has military and legal and political and affective resonance to describe the structure of domination and repression. And of course, last year, the Jammu and Kashmir High Court ruled that freedom of speech and expression under the Indian constitution cannot be stretched to include occupation of the military 
right? Or people being plagued. So it's actually been outlawed now to use the term occupation in reference to Kashmir. But in the case of Kashmir, occupation and this kind of newer analytic of settler colonialism are complementary conceptual frameworks, right? So what we're seeing just in the last few years is a kind of turn towards settler colonial frameworks, but it's really a turn to where we already were. And that's a quote from Eve. But I think at this moment, it's been very important for us to explore the settler colonial analytic and what it can provide for us. Again, this is kind of new terrain that we're exploring because it does seem to open up new possibilities, again, for these transnational linkages and solidarities. It opens up new opportunities for connections with the struggles of indigenous communities elsewhere and to really explore the resonances with the multifaceted struggles of Black and Native people for ecological and food sovereignty, for health and environmental justice across the globe. Well, that, that was actually going to be my last question. Could you both talk more about what the international community can do in terms of solidarity? And I'd like to hear more about this conceptual framework of settler colonialism, too, if you'd like to talk about that. So what I would say about settler colonialism, David, is that it's an old phenomenon, but has only really become a topic of conversation more recently. One aspect of settler colonialism in this place is that it has been built around militarized settlements. There are hundreds of square kilometers, huge swaths of territory that are under military control. They operate as a completely separate place. They sort of, a different regime of law is applicable. They have their own schools and hospitals in Kashmir. And it's interesting, one point I'll make about it is that in the case of Palestine, under the Israeli occupation, settler colonialism also started as a military installation. Basically, settlements were built around military installations. And it's interesting because as we think about institutions, the Israeli judiciary actually thought a lot about how do we justify this under international law? And so there's, there's a, an effort to think about the law of war and the opportunities within the law of war to have military installations for purposes of security, et cetera. And that's the mechanism or device through which the settler colonial regime began to operate in that territory. What's fascinating about Kashmir is I am unaware of any such exercise amongst the judiciary or otherwise to validate anything or justify anything because it's not even deemed to be needing any kind of justification. It's just this place without any kind of accountability or rights of any kind. In terms of people in all kinds of spaces, individuals, groups, organizations, what have you, the international community, and a lot of people that I work with invite people into this conversation about what is happening in Kashmir, what has happened in Kashmir. Very interested in understanding better what is happening, what does it mean? Very interested in other people's perspectives on that, their ideas, interested in their tactics, their ideas about like, what can we do in the situation of structural disempowerment to do things better, differently, be heard, actually confront these lies, try and build towards some measure of accountability, et cetera. There are a number of organizations that are working in the global north on these issues. There are specific campaigns that are ongoing. So for example, we talked here about the G20. There is a campaign right now to protest the holding of the G20 meetings in Kashmir. That is being led by an organization called Stand with Kashmir. They have a whole campaign on that. So there are individual campaigns like that, that people can get involved with, but there are broader attempts to organize and do work programmatically at all kinds of levels that's within the nation state paradigm at the UN in scholarship and otherwise. And so there are financial resources that are always helpful. There are all kinds of ways, but I would say the biggest thing is inviting people in, asking people to get knowledgeable as much as they can about this content Context, we do really believe that it has a lot to say that's not just particular to this place, but says a lot about a lot of things that a lot of mm -hmm. other people are seeing elsewhere. 
And we want people's involvement. We want their ideas. We want to be in dialogue with them. We're helping them on their issues and then helping us on ours. So a broad invitation to people through organizations like K-Scan, which came up here, same with Kashmir. I work for an organization called the Kashmir Law and Justice Project. So I would say a broad invitation, David, including the scholars like you, to help us mm -hmm. see and understand and describe that which we are faced with in Kashmir today. I think everything that Imran just suggested is important. And I would echo that invitation for your listeners. Please think about Kashmir, the global Kashmiri movement for liberation and self-determination as a struggle that has relevance and significance for the struggle that you're invested in and that you're committed to and that you're pursuing. It might take a little bit of time to learn about what's happening in Kashmir. There's some wonderful memoirs and novels that I think that can provide a lot of insight into what's been happening over the last few decades. There's a memoir by a Kashmiri author named Bashar Peer that came out about 15 years ago called Curfew's Night. He tells the story of growing up in Kashmir in the 1990s. There's a series of novels by a Kashmiri author named Mirza Waheed. The Collaborator is the first, The Book of Gold Leaves. He had a third novel of Kashmir that just came out in February of this year called Tell Her Everything. So if you're looking for some literature, if you're looking for some memoirs, the organizations that Imran mentioned stand with Kashmir, Kashmir Law and Justice Project, KSCAN, the Scholars Network. We've produced and circulate information on Kashmir, on the human rights situation, on the larger kind of political mm. issues online and through different kinds of media platforms. So I would just ask you to please think about the ways in which the Kashmir struggle resonates with the other kinds of struggles that you're invested in and committed to. Well, you've given me a wonderful idea for another program. I'd love to have you both back on to talk about culture and art, because I think that's another way to fight the disinformation campaigns with another set of media. I think it would be wonderful. I mentioned novels, but of course, Kashmiris are also famous for poetry. And so even mm -hmm. despite all the ugliness and violence, it's also important that we remember that Kashmir and the Kashmir people are also people of, of great beauty. And there's a lot of beauty in the struggle that's been produced I, as well. Yeah, I would say one of the overarching moral lessons that I was given as a Kashmir is that our effort is to do the beautiful in the face of the ugly. And that actually mm -hmm. informs a lot of what you see people do, despite everything that they see. It's very hard for many people to understand, but literally it is a case that because of transnational repression, because of pervasive surveillance, Kashmiris are unable to speak for themselves. One of the things that people who are principled and thoughtful and learn just a little bit about the realities of Kashmir can do is actually speak for Kashmiris, speak with Kashmiris in terms of in solidarity with them, but speak for them where we can't speak for ourselves. The only way that we get to systematic fairness and justice for more of it is by working transnationally. And I would say there is no place in the world that I know of that needs it more than Kashmir. Well, I would just add that when you were talking, I was reminded of Cornell West's definition of the blues. He said, the blues is love in the face of catastrophe. So I want to underscore that. Thank you so much for spending the time with us and sharing your knowledge. It was really so inspiring and passionate. I hope that this will be transformative for people's understanding of Kashmir, inshallah. Yeah. Thank you again for the opportunity, David. Thank you both so much. We don't have many opportunities like this. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's intentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.